Welcome to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller from WMHT.org. David Allen Miller conducts the Albany Symphony and he provides commentary on the WMHT Live broadcast. David's commentary is full of fascinating stories about the music, the performances, and more. In order to keep the program mostly music, some of what he provides ends up on the cutting room floor. This podcast contains no music, but it does contain all of David Allen Miller's commentary from the concert broadcast on WMHT Live from WMHT-FM, your classical companion. The Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. Our concert was bookended at the beginning and the end by two pieces that owe a great deal of their fame to none other than Walt Disney, because they were both featured on that amazing Disney film, Fantasia. To begin, we have Paul Ducas' Sorcerer's Apprentice, and it is incredible how indelibly those visuals are are emblazoned on, on the minds of those of us who came to hear that piece for the first time in the film of Little Mickey as a Sorcerer's Apprentice. But in fact, the real work, the original work, was written uh, back in 1897 by the great French composer, Mr. Ducas. It was based on a Goethe poem that describes this Sorcerer's Apprentice whose, whose work gets out of hand and the sorcerer has to come back and restore order. And it is a most magical and singular tone poem, very unlike any other tone poem I know. You know, there's so many famous German ones and a certain number of of French ones, Cesar Franck and other composers like that wrote tone poems. But this one in its 13 or 14 minutes packs such an incredible wallop. I've always been struck also not only by the the four bassoons, the three bassoon and contrabassoon, the bass bassoon, uh, and the fact that their color and their sound, that boom, boom, so dominates and so colors this magical little story. But also there's a very unusual aspect to this piece that uh, actually makes it very hard for orchestras that don't see it frequently to figure out. It's that usually in music, uh, the phrases tend to be by and large, ordered in, in four-bar groups. It's a very kind of stable sort of thing. There are four bars at the beginning of the phrase and four bars at the end of the phrase, and occasionally a great composer like Mozart or Haydn or later composers will play with that. They'll add a fifth bar or subtract a bar or finish a phrase a little bit early, and that kind of gives you this wonderful sense of disruption and elision and various things like that. In the case of The Sorcerer's Apprentice, it's the only piece I know where essentially every single phrase and subphrase is is in three-bar groups groups. And in a strange way, that's very, uh, it goes very fast, you know, because the, the bars are small and the, the music goes by very quickly. And it makes organizing it kind of in your mind and on the page actually very, very difficult. So if you think about it, bum, bum, it's one, two, three, one, and two, three, one, and two, and three, one, and two, and three, one, and two, and three, and that's actually compositionally a very hard thing for a composer to do, to make all the phrases fit into this three and then six and then nine bar phrase. And that's part of what gives it, I think, its incredible, exciting lilt. Anyway, it's an incredible orchestral tour de force and great fun to play. Uh, And again, very magical and and, uh, incredibly imaginative music. So here it is, the opening work from our concert, Paul Ducas' Sorcerer's Apprentice. It features the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. Paul Ducas' Sorcerer's Apprentice, the first work on our program, featuring the Albany Symphony conducted by me, David Allen Miller. 
The next work on our program is a work that we were very excited about because it was a chance for us to welcome one of our greatest and most singular American composers, the great David Del Tredici. David is celebrating his 80th birthday this year, which is kind of hard to believe because he's this incredibly youthful, puckish, uh, funny, uh, extremely energetic person, wonderfully charming and funny and impish in a way. Uh, And the idea that he's now 80 is quite remarkable, but he's uh, eternally young, and uh, we were really thrilled to invite him. He's going to be back later in the season on our American Music Festival. He's actually uh, the Albany Symphony's melon-funded mentor composer, which means that he's making multiple visits and spending a good deal of time with us, and we're beginning to create a, a recording of previously unrecorded music by him. So for his first engagement with us this year, uh, we asked him what piece he'd like us to play, and the work that he immediately mentioned is, is a work that uh, came to his mind because it is so closely associated with us geographically. In 2007, he created, I believe for the National Symphony, a narrated version of the classic Washington Irving story, Rip Van Winkle. And of course, Rip is that legendary uh, figure from the Catskill Mountains who goes up into the mountains and falls asleep, uh, and unbeknownst to himself, 20 years passes before he returns down to, to... his, his little village where a great deal has changed. In fact, among the highlights from his perspective is that his incredibly shrewish wife has passed away. Not much for most of us to celebrate, but he seemed rather relieved in the story to, to discover that. And I guess he had, according to the legend, had encountered uh, Henry Hudson's crew, that, the ghostly crew that tends to party in the Catskill Mountains. So it's a, a charming uh, kind of I guess pre-Victorian tale, but but very wonderful early American tale. And so David, who's often been considered something of a, a neo-romantic composer, he, he was one of the very famous composers in the 1970s who threw a number of big, very opulent uh, orchestral pieces, uh, actually virtually all of them focusing on different aspects of the Alice in Wonderland story that made him quite famous nationally and internationally and that were played by all the major orchestras. He really was one of the figures who ushered in this kind of new romanticism or neo-romanticism after all the the decades of of really hardcore modernism sort of inspired by Schoenberg and Berg and Webern, uh, composers like Elliot Carter and Milton Babbitt and other other composers like that uh, had, had been working in, in very challenging, difficult, super chromatic, not really tonal idioms. And David was one of the composers who said, you know, if I want to write a beautiful Straussian chord that sounds luscious and luminous and romantic, I feel like I have a right to do that. And in the 1970s, that was considered something of a, of a heresy, but he went ahead and wrote the music he wanted to. And he and other composers, like our, our good friend John Corleano, were really largely credited with, with reopening possibilities for younger American composers to begin to, to re-engage with tonal music, with music that has melodies and harmonies recognizable and things like that. So fast forward, you know, 30 years after this or so uh, from the 70s, and in 2007, he had kind of exhausted his fascination with Alice in Wonderland after some 25 or 30 works. And in 2007, he began to write a number of patriotic works. As he describes it, he's a, a very patriotic person, very progressive, very proud of, of a America and being an American. And so this was one of those patriotic works. 
So his then partner, uh, Ray Warman, uh, created a text uh, based on the Washington Irving, and David set it in this uh, romantic, almost Victorian-sounding world. To, to me, it it sort of sounds like the musical equivalent of the Hudson River painters. It's warm and luscious and 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 kind of Malarian and Brahmsian and Straussian all at once. And uh, it's narrated by a wonderful thespian, an actor, playwright, celebrated figure from New York City, Charles Bush. We were delighted to welcome him to do the narration. So here now, David Del Tredici's Rip Van Winkle for narrator and orchestra. The narrator is Charles Bush, and the orchestra is the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. This is the Conductor's Notes podcast, only from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org. The Conductor's Notes podcast, featuring David Allen Miller's commentary for the Albany Symphony concert broadcast, is made possible in part by a grant from the Aaron Copeland Fund for Music, supporting nonprofit organizations that have a history of substantial commitment to contemporary music. That was David Del Tredici's narrated work, Rip Van Winkle. The narrator was Charles Bush, and the Albany Symphony was conducted by me, David Allen Miller. My original idea in this concert, because I knew that we were going to put Rip Van Winkle in the middle, was kind of to do a musical fairy tales, fantasy, uh, extraterrestrial kind of a program. And I've always wanted to do the Rite of Spring with the Albany Symphony. It's a, a very huge orchestra that's called for. And so in my 25-year tenure, we've never actually performed it together. So this was a great and very exciting opportunity for us to, to perform that incredible work. The Rite of Spring, as you know, is really one of the most important works in classical concert orchestral music history. As you perhaps know, it it spawned a huge riot in 1913 when it was first performed at the Theatre de la Champs-Élysées, this beautiful new theater in Paris on, on, I believe, May 29th. It was actually a a huge uh, scandal with the audience screaming and yelling and throwing things and possibly the police coming in and having to quiet the crowds and Pierre Monteux, the conductor, barely able to get through the whole ballet and the great dancer, choreographer Nijinsky, standing in the wings on a chair, screaming the counts to the dancers so they wouldn't lose their place. Very legendary, super legendary uh, event in music history. And and in a way credited, I think rightly so, with ushering in modernism, uh, which is kind of interesting to put this after the David Del Tredici, which kind of ushers out modernism (laughs) or ushers back in romanticism. But there certainly were other very experimental and challenging and interesting things going on in the music world. But this thing got more ink and more press than anything else, uh, possibly because Sergei Diaghilev, the impresario of the Ballet Russe, who uh, was Stravinsky's mentor and who had two years earlier commissioned him to create his first big full-length ballet, The Firebird, and then a year earlier to create Petrushka, his second great ballet, and now turned to this uh, amazing primitivist ballet, The Rite of Spring. Sergei Diaghilev possibly engineered this scandal so that it would bring great attention to his troupe and to Stravinsky and to himself. But however it happened, it really did sort of um, create a new kind of music and open the door to all sorts of new experimental activities in, in concert music. The way the the piece evolved, uh, shortly after the Firebird performance, uh, Stravinsky, who was now already suddenly overnight something of a celebrity, the the piece had been performed in Paris, and uh, Stravinsky had gotten lots and lots of attention as a a very young, not quite 30-year-old person. One day thereafter, you know, being a a, a Russian, uh, he had this kind of image of ancient Russian tribes and of this sacrifice of this young virgin, I guess, dancing herself to death, and uh, didn't quite know 
know what to do with it, but thought that maybe he could turn it into a ballet. And after a little bit of a of a tangent going off to write Petrushka, which started out as a piano concerto and then turned into a, a ballet featuring piano very prominently, uh, he turned back to this idea of this sacred rite, of this ancient rite. And he uh, worked together with a, a set designer that uh, Diaghilev was very close to, with a Mr. Rurich, who happened also to be a, a trained archaeologist and anthropologist uh, and a real expert on ancient Slavic tribes. So together they, they kind of hatched this scenario. And, and what's very interesting about this ballet is that the music really preceded the dance. It was only after the ballet was really complete that Stravinsky turned to Nijinsky, the great dancer, rather erratic figure who ultimately would become completely insane and already was showing signs of uh, emotional, mental instability. He was, of course, Diaghilev's leading dancer and one of the greatest dancers of all times, but a very emotionally imbalanced person. Diaghilev, though, wanted him to be a choreographer and had the year before uh, had him choreograph Debussy's Afternoon of a Fawn, Le Premier du Dauphin, uh, in this very sexualized way that created its own mini-scandal. And so now he insisted that Stravinsky work with Nijinsky to create dance for the Rite of Spring. But what's different about this ballet from the two prior ballets is that Stravinsky really fully uh, realized the ballet before even turning to the question of, of how to choreograph it. Rurich uh, wrote a description of, of the way the, the two parts of the ballet work uh, and sent it to Diaghilev. He said, the first set transports us to the foot of a sacred hill in a lush plain where Slavonic tribes are gathered together to celebrate the spring rites. There's an old witch who predicts the future, a marriage by capture, round dances, etc. So all sorts of kind of, that the idea was that the first half was daytime and all these kind of games of the different tribes and the, the adolescents and the kids and then the second half happens after midnight and it's this very sacred event. It's this ritual sacrifice where the elders select one young woman and she is required to dance herself to death. And just before she hits the ground, the elders pick her up and lift her up. And there's this kind of strangely inconsequential ending as they rescue her from sullying the earth. Uh, So it's a very strange, very bizarre, wonderfully inventive ballet that that really did kind of, even though Stravinsky in in this ballet, like in his two earlier ballets, owed a great debt to his teacher Rimsky-Korsakoff and to to earlier composers, to his good friends Ravel and Debussy, this this ballet uh, really is an unbelievable step forward, particularly in, in the world of rhythm. He creates these unbelievably jagged polyrhythms where he goes back and forth from one pulse to another and what we call mixed meter, where it'll be these very jagged, strange rhythms. And, and the last section, the last eight minutes, are among the most challenging for conductors and orchestras to negotiate because every single bar is a different pulse from the prior bar. 2-8, 3-8, uh, 2 4-8, back and forth, 7-16. It's very, very complicated. And, and uh, Stravinsky actually described it. that he, he made it up at the piano and had no idea how to notate it and then eventually figured out how to. And very, very challenging. Uh, so the rhythmic structures of the piece are just absolutely unique. There's a very famous early part of, of the piece where the, the first sort of loud music after this wonderful kind of opening uh, of, of these 
incredible, uh, unusual sound, starting with the famous bassoon in the first bar uh, playing way up above his standard repertoire, an idea that really shocked people at the time, particularly bassoonists who had no way of knowing how to negotiate this thing. It's now become the most standard excerpt of all. But then there's this jump, 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 the augers of spring section, which actually is in a very regular rhythm. It's just in kind of a 2-4 sort of thing. But because of the cross rhythm, that Stravinsky writes into it, it becomes this jagged thing. So in the area of rhythm, it's absolutely a, a revelation. In the area of, of extended instrumental techniques, starting with Apassoon, it's, it's a, a whole new world that Stravinsky opens up to people. And in the world of these kind of strange static harmonies, very crunchy, lots of notes that normally wouldn't go in a chord, it's also kind of a, a revelation in that sense. So in, in every possible way, it's, it's a real watershed in the evolution of contemporary music. So very exciting, strange, beautiful, and incredibly daunting, challenging piece. It it really does sort of evoke this uh, lost world of his imagined primitive Slavic or Slavonic world. I I came to believe through my research for this performance, one can go on YouTube and actually see a a, a very interesting Joffrey ballet reconstruction of the original choreography as well as the original sets and and costumes. Uh, You can see the whole ballet danced probably pretty closely to how it was initially danced. And and in my watching that, after having really studied the, the score closely, I've really come to believe that the scandal had a lot more to do with the dancing than the music, which is not an entirely unique idea on my part. But the dancing is, is the, the choreography is really awkward and bizarre and, frankly, strangely amateurish. Uh, Nijinsky didn't really know how to express this, so he was very literal. And in that part, jump, 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 he has everybody use, uh, everybody do a, a, a lift or a, a step for every one of those jump, 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 jump. And it looks like, you know, bad imitations of 1940s Indian dancing, you know, what, what Western movies used to do. And and frankly, strangely um, not convincing and, and odd. So not surprising to me that the very sophisticated, cultured Parisian audience of 1913 would have found this this whole choreographic thing, as well as the kind of goofy costumes, really risible and made a lot of fun of it. Uh, so they did, and actually, you know, when she stands there, the, the virgin about to be sacrificed, she's standing there shivering for about 12 minutes before she starts this very strange, almost Egon Schiele-like, angular, bizarre dance of death. You know, somebody in the audience yelled out, and doctor, get her a doctor. And dentist, get her a dentist. Do dentist, get her two dentists. Uh, and that sort of get the, got the riot going even more. But I, I'm convinced that, that the riot had more to do with the dance. Stravinsky at the time defended Nijinsky. Many years later, he kind of denounced that choreography. And obviously, it's been choreographed by many other great choreographers through the years. But I think Stravinsky was frankly quite delighted when it began to take the stage as a purely orchestral piece, because in a way, I think he maybe even thought of it that way. However you take it, with dance, without dance, uh, as an orchestral masterpiece, as a choreographic masterpiece, it is an incredible, creative, amazing work. And we are delighted to present it. So here now, The Rite of Spring, Igor Stravinsky's 1913 masterpiece, played by the Albany Symphony, conducted by me, David Allen Miller. Thanks for listening to the Conductor's Notes podcast featuring David Allen Miller of the Albany Symphony Orchestra from WMHT-FM, your classical companion, and WMHT.org.